Welcome back. Thank you for joining us again this week. We're so glad that you're here to listen. As always, please give us a like on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church. Go to our website at www.shumcokc.org. you a happy Mother's Day, and I'm glad that you are uh, here to worship with us. We're upholding you in prayer, uh, no matter where you are, no matter when you are. And so today, as we begin our study together, uh, I want to take just a few moments to begin with prayer. The scriptures are holy, and before we consider them, we should pray together. Let's do that. God, we're grateful today the ways in which you don't leave us behind. Sometimes it's hard to remember that we're in this together. Sometimes it's hard to remember that learning to persevere isn't just about learning to persevere individually but that learning to persevere is sometimes about learning what it means for us to persevere. And so God, today as we begin uh, our study of the lessons that you left behind for us to help us to better understand what it means to be followers of your Son who is our Savior, Jesus Christ, lessons that help us to better understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom, lessons that help us to be able to open our eyes to the idea that there's a different way to live than the way that we've been taught to live. There's a different ethic than the ethic of the world. We do that today, mindfully aware of those who have sacrificed so much to show us your love. We give you thanks today, God, for our mothers and for the manner in which your sacrificial, proactive, and unconditional love was made real in our lives through their lives and through their example. Help us to honor the lessons that we've learned by opening our hearts and our minds and our spirits today so that we might hear what you would have us hear We might see what you would have us see, and we might learn what you would have us learn so that we can take one more step toward becoming the people that you've always known that we could be. One more step toward becoming those who live in abundant life and health and happiness and wholeness. One more step toward becoming fulfilled in the way that our mothers always prayed that we would be. This we ask in your name. So I have this flashback. I'm sitting there in, in uh, seminary. Seminary is the name, it's what we call the graduate school that ministers go to. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm in seminary and I'm reading, I'm taking this class on community. And one of the texts is written by uh, a martyr. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran minister. I've preached about him before. He was a Lutheran minister 
who uh, would die in a Nazi prison because he was subversively working against the Nazi regime in Germany. So while he's there, before that, he would, uh, he would write. He wrote prolifically. Like, if you haven't encountered, you probably have heard the name at some point, and if you haven't, or if you haven't read him, then take some time, sit down, and read his work, because he was a profound theologian. He had an understanding of the ethic of the spirit, the ethic of the, of the kingdom, that transcended uh, most of those who were writing in his time, and many who have gone before or come since. He's worth reading. So he's writing about community, right? He, he, he writes this treatise on the ethic of community. And I have this flashback. In it, he says, paraphrased, a couple of things that have stuck with me forever. One of them is that I can no longer hate a sister or a brother for whom I pray. When I tell you that wherever and whenever you are, we're upholding you in prayer, I hope that ethic is starting to make its way into your life. I hope that you're upholding your sisters and your brothers in the faith, your sisters and your brothers who have decided to be followers of Christ together with you, and I hope you're upholding more people than that in prayer, wherever and whenever they are, and whether they know you or not. I hope that's happening. So when I tell you that we're doing that, a lot of that is because of what Bonhoeffer teaches. Bonhoeffer says, you know, I can no longer hate a sister or a brother for whom I pray, right? So we all, even when we're yoked together, we're not the same people. There are things, in fact, the closer you are to someone, the more likely you are to be annoyed by them, right? Jesus is always arguing with the Pharisees. And almost every scholar you read is going to say the reason Jesus argues with the Pharisees is because he has so much in common with them. They're both so similar, similarly oriented in much of their theology in what they want to accomplish. And so because of that, you see all this friction there. Uh, Jesus is always chastising them and they're terribly annoyed with Christ. It's like the people who are closest to you that you tend to be the most annoyed with. So Bonhoeffer says this. Bonhoeffer says, I can no longer hate a sister or a brother for whom I pray. It doesn't matter if we're close to each other and so we annoy each other. There's friction there. You know, we rub each other in the wrong way. I'm frustrated with you. I'm annoyed with you. You're annoyed with me. It doesn't matter if that's the case or if we just disagree. When I went to seminary, my very first class our, my very first professor sat us down. They always say, for whom, you know, is this your very first seminary class? And so, you know, we'll raise our hand. And they gave us a speech. Said a lot of things. One of them was this. As a result of your study here, you're going to encounter people whose theology just makes you insanely upset. Like they believe the opposite of everything you think you believe. And yet they're still within the umbrella of Christianity. And they said, you're going to learn as you begin to be in dialogue with the people that, who disagree with you sharply that it's going to give you an opportunity to think more deeply together with God about what you believe. So whether or not someone annoys you because you're close to them, or whether or not they tend to believe things that are so different from what you believe, Bonhoeffer says this, I can no longer hate a sister or a brother whom I uphold in prayer. He said, it may be hard to start, and I'm paraphrasing this because he writes in an older vernacular. He says, it may be hard to start praying for them, but once you do, 
Once you get past that first hurdle, it may be hard for you to pray for them today, but even praying for them today is going to start to change you. So if you pray for them today, and then you pray for them tomorrow, it's going to be a little easier, and the next day it's going to be a little easier, and you're thinking, Pastor, I have to pray for people more than one time. Yes. And if you pray for them the next day, and then the next day, he said, all of a sudden, their face becomes transformed. He's like, like, like he's seeing them in his mind, you know, when he prays for them. So their face becomes transformed for me. And then I realized he was talking about that literally. Like when he sees them, he's no longer annoyed by them. Now he loves them. I can no longer hate a sister or brother for whom I pray because their face is transformed for me. Listen to this. Into the face of a sinner for whom Christ also died. Also being the most important word there. So I'm reading this. I had this flashback. I've told this story in the past, so you may have heard it before. I had this flashback to where I'm running, and I'm in this military school, right? So I'm, I'm running, and it's a school um, where they really want to weed people out. They really want us to drop out, and if you don't drop out, they'll try to find other ways to kind of weed you out. So the runs are sort of a little bit intense, and so we're, we're running, right? And there are these people in the school who've been in the military a lot longer than I have and have done a lot more than I've done. They're in way better shape than I have, and they have much better skill sets than I do. And so we're, we're all running together, and these are the people, I mean, they could, run, they could outrun the instructors. They could just keep going and going and going. And we're in, I don't know, somewhere like mile six or seven. And the people who are not in as good a shape start falling out the back. They just start trailing off. And the instructors are running around. You know, they're in pretty good shape. They're running around. Most of us are just trying to stay with everybody else, right? The instructors are running around. And as people start to fall back, as they start to kind of fall away from the formation, still trying to keep up, but they can't do it anymore, the instructors are yelling at us, telling us not to go back. Just keep going. Keep your eyes ahead. If you fall out, you're going to be kicked out of the program. And so I'm running, huffing, puffing, trying to stay up. And there are these people up in the front of the class, the people who are in wonderful shape. And all of a sudden, they turn the whole formation around. Like, we just start to turn. And I don't know what's happening. But in the army, you're so trained to do what the people in front of you are doing that even though I don't know what's happening, they turn, and so I start turning around too with them. And we go back, we're running the opposite direction until we run past the people who fell out. And when we get way past, now the instructors are screaming at us. They're going to kick all of us out of the program. They're screaming at us. We run past them. The people who fell out are running the right direction, slowly. Now I'm running the wrong direction at the same speed that I was running the, the other direction, the right direction at it, uh, just a minute ago, and the, all these thoughts are running through my head like, are they really going to kick me out of the program? How much ground am I losing right now that I'm going to have to run all over again? And so I'm running. We get way behind them, and the people up in front turn us again. We start running back the right direction. And as we catch up to the people who had fallen back, people at the front, the ones that I told you about that have more experience, they're in great shape, have skill sets that I, I didn't have. They take the people who've fallen out and they put them at the front, and they won't let anybody run faster than them, no matter how much the instructors scream. 
And so by this point, two things, two more, two more, there's a lot of thoughts going through my head. Two more things are happening at this point, and one of them is I'm thinking to myself, I'm done. There's no way I'm going to stay in this program anymore. And the other one was, I am so glad that we're running slower than we were running a minute ago because I wasn't sure I was going to make it either. We get back. They put us all in the push-up position in the Army. They call it the front-leaning rest position. They put us all in the push-up position. We're just doing push-ups and push-ups and push-ups and push-ups. They're, they're mad at us and screaming at us and yelling at us, telling us we're terrible and horrible and we, sh we didn't follow their instructions and what, I don't even remember everything they said because now I'm just trying to do all the push-ups. So I get up. They put us in formation. And then they tell us that had we not turned around, they would have kicked everybody out of the program and started over with a new class. And then they said something I'll never forget. It was part of something I had to memorize. They said, we're going to, if, if you, you go through this, you're going to be a part of a group. And in that group, we don't leave fallen people behind. We're talking about stories of perseverance. Sometimes it's easy to forget, especially when we're talking about perseverance. We can get so focused on what it means for me to persevere that we can forget so easily that we're in this together. And that I don't persevere unless we persevere. There's an ethic, and I've talked to you a lot lately about the difference between uh, the broken ethic of a wounded world and the healthy ethic of the kingdom, the healing ethic of the kingdom. So there's this lie that you're told when you grow up in the broken ethic of a wounded world, and it sounds something like this. In order to get ahead of other people, success is competition-based. So you can't get ahead. Do you see even how the language works? You can't get ahead unless you beat out somebody else. Success is competitively oriented according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. That's what we're taught. We even use the language associated with that to reinforce it. I, in order to be successful, I've got to get ahead. Get ahead of who? Everybody else. There's another old saying in the army. You'd be surprised how many bears there are. Like bears, like real, like bears, right? So we have all these safety briefings, killer bees. What do you do if you run into killer bees? That happened, I'll tell you that story sometime. It's, well, it was funny for me. It wasn't funny for somebody else, but it was funny for me. So there, what do you do if you run into killer bees? What do you do if you run into a bear? There's an old saying in the army that I don't have to outrun the bear. Have you heard this? I just have to outrun you. That's how we treat success, isn't it? All I have to do is get ahead of you. Success, in the, oh, if, you, if you live according to the broken ethic of a wounded world, which is a lie, success is competitively oriented. The healing ethic of the kingdom says, no, 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 success is mutually oriented. I am not successful when I'm successful at your expense. I'm successful when we are successful. We are in this together. And because of that, we don't leave fallen people behind. That's one of the reasons I love the story of Ruth and Naomi. And I'll bet there's a lot here that you don't know. 
Let me share some of those things with you. For starters, Elimelech is the name of the man that Naomi is married to, and they, they leave Israel, uh, Bethlehem in particular, and they go to Moab. Now, there's a sordid history between Israel and Moab. So, they're, they're, so you refer to those people as the Israelites and the Moabites, and if you've ever wondered how, to, wondered how to pronounce all of those things, Israel, Moab, Israelite, Moabite, Elimelech that you see in the Bible, here's the secret to Old Testament pronunciations. You may have heard me teach this before. It goes like this. If you ever have to read out of the Old Testament and you come across one of those names, read it fast and read it confidently. It'll sound to everybody like you know what you're saying and none of them know how to pronounce it either. So just read it fast and confidently. But if you want to know how to say it, it's Elimelech, Elimelech, and then Moab and the Moabites. So here's what happens, right? Elimelech is married to Naomi. Elimelech means something like God is sovereign, or God is powerful. If you update the language, then it translates to something like God will show up. God will do what God has said that God will do. So there's some foreshadowing in the story. If you're an ancient Israelite and you encounter this story way back when it's told or when it's written, then there are a few things that give you a sense of what is to come. The name of Elimelech is one of them. God is going to show up in this story in a powerful way. Naomi's name means kindness or sweetness along those lines. Sweetness kind of in a kind sort of way. So there's a famine. This happens a lot in Israel's history. There's a famine. In fact, there's a famine that finds Israel relocating to Goshen in Egypt where they'll be in slavery for 400 years. This happens over and over again because famines are common in the ancient world, particularly in the desert culture that Israel grows up and, and begins to thrive in. It's a harsh culture and a difficult culture that breeds an ethic of hospitality that's necessary for the survival of the people. I'll talk about that in a minute. There's a famine. So Elimelech takes his family and leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab because they have more there. And the Moabites, in spite of the fact that the Moabites and the Israelites don't always get along because they're different ethnicities. They're different ethnicities and they are different cultures. So they don't always get along. But now they're willing to share. And so Elimelech takes his family there and they kind of set up house and things start to go well, right? Elimelech and Naomi have a couple of sons and those sons marry Moabite women and that is terribly important. So if you're listening, if you were listening to the story and you were thinking to yourself, why is there such a focus on the women of the story getting married? Why does, that, why does that matter? Why are they so, Naomi over and over again is talking to Ruth and Orpah about how the only thing that matters is that they go get married. That's, why is that such a big deal? Here's why. Because they live in a time and a place when in order for a woman to be safe and secure, she has to be connected to a man. I have a bachelor's degree in uh, literature, literature and global humanities from Rogers State University, which is in Claremore here in Oklahoma. And as a part of that, I had the opportunity to take uh, an intensive course that was entirely focused on the writings of Jane Austen. Uh, it was taught by uh, a woman who had done all of her PhD work on Austen's work. So if you're, if you're familiar with Jane Austen, you probably are because of books or movies that have been made from them, like Pride and Prejudice, or Sense and Sensibility, or 
uh, Persuasion, some of her, her more popular works over time. She was a prolific author. I took that program, I, got, I went into that program because I wanted to learn how to tell a story, right? I wanted to learn what the components of a, of a story are um, because that is how Jesus teaches. That's how Jesus taught. It's how Jesus preached. Jesus communicated truth in story. We're just kind of naturally hardwired to listen to a story and pull out the truth from within that story, even when we don't always have the language to put with the truth that we're able to pull out of the story. I wanted to learn how to do that. The, the truth there is that every story told by any author or storyteller has contained within it a particular set of truths. Austin was no different. If you like Austin, you probably like Austin because she had a wonderful uh, writing style, older vernacular. But she also told some great love stories, period piece love stories. So if you like her, if you loved her work, that's probably why. If you don't, you probably don't like her for exactly the same reason, because she had some wonderful love stories and wrote in an older vernacular. Either way, she was a prolific author who wrote extensively about the plight of women who lived in a time in which, in order to be okay, not to thrive, just, just in order to not die, they had to be connected to a man. It's interesting, because if you know anything about Austin, she wasn't married. She, acted, she actually ended up being an early example in that place and in that time of a woman who would make her living on her own based on her own work. But time and again, you get a truth in her writings. And it is a truth about the plight of women in the culture in which she lived. She, the women in the culture in which she lived had to somehow be connected to a man in order to be okay, in order to be safe and secure and have means so that they could survive. That meant that they would go from their father's house to be married to a man who would then take care of them, and then they would need to have sons to take care of them in case their husband happened to pass away. That culture is incredibly similar to the culture that Ruth and Naomi and Orpah are living in. There was a, uh, another movie version of uh, Little Women that was made, what, a couple of years ago, probably. Really, really well done. And in it, one of the characters uh, talks about marriage for a woman in that time and place as opposed to marriage for a man. I'm going to update what she says and paraphrase it a little bit because essentially what she says is that she's talking to a longtime friend and she's talking about why She's looking to get married to the person she's interested in trying to get married to. And he's basically trying to convince her that this is wrong. You're not doing it for the right reasons. And she chastises him, and rightly so, because she says, essentially, paraphrasing, you're a fool if you don't understand that for a woman, a marriage in, in this time and in this place is a contract. We have to make sure that we're taken care of because it's our only opportunity to do that. Now, I would love to believe that as a culture, we've taken some steps toward equality beyond the culture we're talking about right now. Probably we have. Do we have more steps to take? <laughs> Absolutely we do. But that's the culture that Ruth and Naomi are a part of. It is patrilineal, patrilocal, and patriarchal. That means that the culture they live in finds them living in the home of the oldest living male of the family. They live around that home. He owns everything. 
That's patrilocal. Patrilineal means the, the descendancy of the family, the inheritance is traced through the male line. So if you're not a male, you don't inherit. Now there are some exceptions to that, but they're so rare that in the several thousand year history of ancient Israel, they're only recorded a few times. It hardly ever happens that a woman can inherit. That is patrilineal. Patriarchal means that the oldest living male who's in charge of the family, in charge of the family clan, has almost complete and total authority to do with the lives of the people in his family as he sees fit. That is the reality for Ruth and Naomi. It's the world that they live in. So when Elimelech goes with Naomi to Moab, and at first they're okay, they have a couple of kids. What you don't understand if you're not an ancient Israelite is that having children, particularly male children, is incredibly important to everybody. In fact, so important is it that if you are a woman and you're married to a man and you have uh, a couple of male children, right, and your, your husband dies, your male children are supposed to take care of you. But if, if your husband dies and you haven't had any male children, then it is the brother of your husband who's supposed to marry you have children with you, and the children you have together end up being the children of your, of your deceased spouse so that your family, your deceased spouse's family, can continue to inherit. If you look up uh, something in the scripture that's referred to as the sin of Onan, that is what it is about. Onan refused to live into that particular law and would not uh, go ahead and have children that would be his brother's children and not his own. So when Naomi and Elimelech are in Moab and Elimelech dies, Naomi's okay because she has two male children, both of whom have wives. She's taken care of. Things are set. They live there for 10 years. But then the, the unthinkable happens and her sons die without having any children. And now, because her, her father is no longer around, she can't go back to the home of her father, now she falls into the category of what Israel called a widow. And that meant that there was only a certain way she could take care of herself. Now, there's a stipulation in the Old Testament where uh, for widows and orphans, when you are harvesting, people would harvest by hand, right? And when they would thresh, there would often be some left behind. The Old Testament, one of its 613 laws says, don't go back for a second pass. Whatever you don't get on the first pass, you leave for the orphans and the widows so they can come behind and collect for their well-being. It's the only way they could eat by the charity of other people. So Naomi's going to go back to Bethlehem, presumably doing a little bit better. Famine has passed. And she's going to go and try to get that secondary harvest. She's going to go in the fields without a place to live, without any uh, designated food to regularly eat, and try to get gather what she can. So her daughters-in-law come to her and say, hey, we're going to go with you. And she's like, no, don't. You're still young enough. Go find a husband. When she says go back to the home of your mother instead of your father, that is slang in that time, which means you are young enough for another marriage match to be made. Go back to the home of your mother and let another marriage match be made so you can find a husband. And with your husband, you can have more kids. And at first, they're like, they say, no, 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 we're going to go with you. So she gets a little more stern. The interesting thing about the story at this point is that they're all trying to do the right thing. Naomi is so often overlooked because it's so easy to look at how loyal Ruth is. Particularly if you are the parent of adult children, I want you to listen to this. It is easy to take a look at the example of Ruth and apply it to your kids. It is difficult to take the example of Naomi and apply it to yourself. 
Kate and I are just now stepping into what it means to have adult children, and we are loving every second of learning what that life is like. Here's the example from Naomi. Both Naomi and Ruth do the right thing. So does Orpah. Sometimes choosing to persevere, sometimes choosing to be loyal, means choosing between two things that are good, two things that are okay. We'll talk about that in a second. What is the lesson from Naomi? Naomi knows that if Ruth and Orpah stay with her, their lives are over. She knows that she can't provide for them. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be tragedy. Nobody's going to want them, and they need to be wanted in order to be able to be okay. So instead of uh, looking at the example of Ruth, which is easy to do if you're a parent of adult children, you can look at the example of Ruth and say, that's how an adult child should behave, completely loyal to a fault, even at the risk of their own lives, without looking at the example of Naomi and seeing that's exactly what she did. She told them not to come with her because it was the right thing to do. She told them not to sacrifice because it was the right thing to do. She was not going to let Ruth and Orpah give up any opportunity they had for happiness just for the sake of being there together with her. She wasn't going to do that. She wasn't willing to put her own life and livelihood. Let me update that a little bit. To put her own preferences ahead of the well-being of her daughters. But a minute ago, I said they all did the right thing. Ruth wasn't going to let that happen either. Strong-willed. See, the right thing to do, according to their law, was for Ruth and Orpah to leave, and Orpah does that. When Orpah kisses Naomi, she's leaving. She's, she's giving over all responsibility for Naomi's well-being at Naomi's request, and it's the right thing for Naomi to do. Naomi, when they first protest, comes back to them and gets more stern. She does not want them to have a terrible life for her sake. She's not willing to let that happen. So she looks at them, she gets more stern, and she says, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait for me to have children? Are you going to wait 10 years for me to have kids? Matches were made pretty young then. No, that doesn't make any sense. If you come with me, there's just going to be hardship. Hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. You are still young enough. Go back to the house of your mother. Get another match made. You can still have a chance at a life if you're not yoked to me. I don't want that for you. Go. Orpah takes advantage of it, and by the rules and laws and customs of her culture, it is the right thing for her to do. She doesn't do anything dishonorable or wrong. Ruth is headstrong. And she is not going to let Naomi go without remaining loyal to her. So when Naomi says that, Ruth looks back at her and says, no, 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 no. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. What you're seeing here is loyalty in spite of differences. How do we persevere together? Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, we're fiercely loyal to the people with whom we've been yoked. And that is a choice. Christ, when, he, when his parents, uh, his mother and his brothers come to see him when he's in ministry, and he doesn't receive them. Do you remember that story? Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, no, 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 they can stay there. The, the people who are here with me, the followers of my Father and your Father in heaven, they are my sisters and they are my brothers. Is Jesus not like his family? No. 
Now his brother James will end up leading the church. His mother will be there with him when he dies. No, he loves his family. He's teaching the same thing he teaches in another passage when, when he's talking about what will happen to those who, who have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. He says, those who, who turn around and go back for sister or brother or mother or father are not worthy of me. They're not worthy of the kingdom. You hear that language and it comes across as awkward if you update it a little bit. What Jesus is saying is to be affiliated as a follower of Christ is a choice. When you make that choice, you're making it in spite of differences. You're not going to be of the same family. You're not going to be of the same ethnicity. You're not going to be of the same gender. You're not going to be of the same culture. Listen to this. You're not going to be of the same political affiliation. And you're not going to have the same beliefs about everything. So what is Jesus saying in those two passages? That that decision you make binds you together like no other connection in all of creation. How do we persevere together? By being fiercely loyal. Ruth and Naomi come from opposing ethnicities. They fought in the past. They didn't always like each other. And yet, Ruth says, because sometimes we, we, we hold to, to a, an idea that we need to uh, persevere and be loyal to our preferences and loyal to our processes, and we forget to be loyal to our people. Ruth says, I'm going to be loyal to you. I have put my lot in with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people are now my people. Your God is my God. And where you die, I will die. And I will be buried where you are buried. And Naomi, this I think is wisdom that comes with age, realizes that she's talking to her headstrong daughter. Have you noticed that she's not referred to as daughter-in-law? Headstrong daughter. She knows Ruth. She knows she's not going to be dissuaded. So she accepts Ruth's loyalty with kindness. There are lessons here. We're in this together. You don't persevere. We persevere. I don't persevere. We persevere. Success is not found by getting ahead and subsequently by leaving behind. Because success, listen to this, it's a lie that success, however you define that, advancement, achievement, social standing, it's a lie that success is competitively oriented. No, pastor, that's the way it is in the world. No, I'm not saying that that's not how things are according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. I'm telling you that the broken ethic of a wounded world is a lie. Success is mutual. I do well when we do well. There's not such a limited amount that there's only enough for me to do well and I have to do well at your expense. That's, that is a lie. The ethic of the kingdom says the opposite. The ethic of the kingdom says when we do well, we do well. And unless we do well, the success at someone else's expense, listen to this, is not success. It's abuse. So when we persevere, we persevere together. And part of the way that we do that is by being fiercely loyal to those that we're yoked with in spite of annoyances, 
in spite of differences in beliefs, in spite of differences in political affiliations, in spite of uh, different ethnicities, in spite of different genders, in spite of different cultures that we come from, because those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ are going to come from different versions of all of those things. There is more in that that connects us than there is that separates us. That's what Christ has been trying to say over and over throughout the Scriptures. Oh, but pastor, how can I... How can I be fiercely loyal to someone who believes something that is so different than I do? I think this is okay. And they think this is okay. How can I be fiercely loyal to somebody who thinks this is okay when I know that actually this is okay? Had to get that out there. Romans chapter 14, I'm going to end with this. So if you're a person who takes notes, open your Bible. Romans chapter 14, I'm going to start at uh, verse 10. And here's why. Because God in God's great wisdom knew that would be hard. What do I do when I think this is okay and they think this is okay? You can plug in whatever this you want. doesn't matter. In the time of Paul, the this was eating meat. That may seem, I don't know, maybe it's ridiculous to you. We've had 2,000 years of teaching that it is not going to send you to hell to eat meat. But that's because of that argument. Back then, they believed it. Some of those 613 laws had a lot to do with what you couldn't eat. So God in God's great wisdom knows that not, we don't, what we don't need is a set of specific do's and don'ts. The old covenant was made that way. The new covenant says get to know God and God will let you know what you should and shouldn't do, what's good and what's not good, what's right and what's not right, what's healthy and not healthy. Get to know God and that's how you learn those things. But God knew people were going to say, well, what do I do in the meantime? So in God's great wisdom, God through Paul gives us an ethic about how we approach that. Not just a specific set of, in this circumstance, do this, and in this circumstance, do this, but an ethic that you can apply to that circumstance whenever it arises. What circumstance, pastor? When you find yourself in a place where this person believes this is okay, and that's not, and this person believes this is okay, and that's not, what do you do? Here's what Paul says. Why do you judge your brother and sister? Chapter 14, verse 10. Why do you look down on your brother and sister? We're all going to stand in front of the judgment of God. Because it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now if you're like me, at this point you should be asking a question. What is the account I'm going to give? Paul answers that. Stop judging each other. Instead, this is what you should do. Never put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I know, and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is wrong to eat in itself. Here's what Paul is saying. For thousands of years, we believe that eating these things are wrong. Paul, who's one of the most well-respected Pharisees trained by Gamaliel, who is the most respected Pharisee of, of all of history, says, I believe that it is okay for us to not follow the ancient traditions and the ancient law of Scripture that says we can't eat these things. I'm fully convinced, he says, in the Lord Jesus of that. But, always a but, right? But, if someone thinks that something is wrong to eat, it becomes wrong for that person. If your brother or sister is upset by your food, then you're no longer walking in love. Don't let your food Destroy someone for whom Christ died. So if you didn't like the, if you didn't, if you thought it was not okay to eat the food, here's where you went with that. See, 
you're not supposed to eat the food either. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not what God is saying. It's not what Christ is saying. What Paul is saying is this. If Paul says, I think it's perfectly fine to eat food, but if another person thinks that it's not okay to eat the food and I just eat it in front of them for the sake of rubbing it in, I'm not living in love. I don't need to do that. So don't. But there's more. Don't let your food destroy someone for whom Christ died. And don't let, listen to this, don't let something you consider to be good be criticized as wrong. Is it okay to eat the meat? Yes. Why? Paul's about to say that. But Paul also says, I also don't need to lord it over you and rub it in your face when I do it. So what do we do? How do we handle that? God's kingdom is not about eating food and drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. All food is acceptable, but it's a bad thing if it trips somebody else. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that trips your brother or sister. Keep the belief that you have to yourself. It's between you and God. People are blessed who don't convict themselves by the things they approve. But those who have doubts are convicted. This is very important. Those who have doubts, this is verse 23, are convicted if they go ahead and eat because they aren't acting on the basis of faith. Everything that isn't based on faith is sin. What is Paul saying? If you, think, if you think the best way to honor God is not to eat meat, don't eat meat. And if you do and you think that's how you honor God and you eat meat anyway, then you've dishonored God. But if you think it's all right to eat meat and that's the, you think that's the best way to honor God, eat the meat. If you don't eat meat and you believe that is the best way to honor God, you've dishonored God by doing the opposite of what you think honors God. Why, Paul says? Because the kingdom of heaven isn't about eating food and drinking things. It's about, what does he say? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. You do not have to agree with everything someone thinks in order to love them, be loyal to them, be reliably present in their lives, be kind to them. If, if love covers a multitude of sins, kindness covers a multitude of disagreements. You do not have to agree with someone to persevere together with them. Why? Because the diversity of the body of Christ, also taught by Paul when Paul is talking about how we're all different parts of the same body, is what makes us strong what allows us to persevere together. We're in this together. So where is it in your life where you have been loyal to your preferences or your processes when the Spirit was calling you to be loyal to your people? How do you change that? I think that's simple. I think all you have to do is go home to the place where you pray and ask God to help you to see people differently. Pastor, how can I do that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer had some advice. Start praying for them. Those people who annoy you, whom you're frustrated with, whom you don't understand because their culture is different than yours or they're a different ethnicity or a different gender, begin to pray for them. And don't just pray for them once, pray for them more than once. And the first time you do it, they may be so different from you. You may be so diabolically opposed in your belief system that you find it difficult to pray for them. And yet Christ says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sit down and pray for them. And what, you, what you'll find is that what Bonhoeffer said begins to become true for you. You'll no longer see them the way you saw them before. You're going to begin to see them through the eyes of Christ or said differently, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. You're going to start to see them as some, I'm going to update his language, as someone whom Christ also loves and died for. And that'll begin to change how you see yourself in connection to and with them. We are in this together.
We don't let one another fall. Because that is the healthy ethic of the kingdom. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for the opportunity today to learn from a mother's love for her daughters and a daughter's love for her mother. Sometimes we have to choose between two good things. Two things that would technically be right. So help us when we do that, God, to remember that it is only right for us to be loyal to our processes if our processes honor you. It's only right for us to be loyal to our preferences when our preferences honor you. It's only right for us to be loyal to our processes and our preferences when your spirit is not telling us to be loyal to our people. So help us to remember that we're in this together. And that to persevere together means to be fiercely loyal, to be reliably present. If 90% of life is just showing up, then 100% of community is just showing up. Be kind, because kindness covers a multitude of differences. Help us to have the courage, God, to see others the way you see them and to begin that process by praying for those who maybe we haven't spent any time praying for other than that you would change them to be more like us. God, help us to stop. Help us to have the courage to stop asking you to change people to be more like us and the courage to start asking you to change us to be more like you and to see others the way you see them so that we can walk together with others so that we can persevere and thrive together. In your name we pray. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. As always, be sure to tune in next week. Thank you.